Thank you, worship team, on both of these floors. And I want to bring you greetings on all three floors and uh, watching remotely. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus. And as Mike's already said, we are delighted that you're here. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. I don't know what you think about when you think about church, how we do what we do when we do church. There's, there's songs, there's some elements of passing around some elements, and there's some other things. But here's what this is all about. This is all about the people of God coming together in the presence of the Spirit of God to hear from a holy God. And so we sing songs together corporately that we all agree with one another and we confess the same things. And then there's this, this space that the church has done for about 2,000 years, give or take, where there is just a quiet submission to the prophetic utterance of the teaching of God's Word. Not because I'm a prophet, clearly I am not, but because this is one of the principal ways that in the New Testament we find that we are to gather together to hear from God through His Word. So there is, in a sense, as one of my old heroes of the faith, Fleming Rutledge, would say, there is an alchemy that needs to occur between the pulpit and the pew. Ironically, we have neither in this church. So just go with me, the music stand and the brown chairs, okay? There needs to be an alchemy, a sort of a, a, a chemistry, a, a give and take. There needs to be a relational, transactional thing as I'm saying, hey, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord, you are actively receiving and you are processing and you are pondering and you are placing this in your own life and context going, how is God communicating to me? Well, this morning we have one of the most central passages in all of your Bible that I am convinced the Lord your God wants to speak directly to you. We are in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 9. When I was a little kid, way back, there was a Silly little song that we used to sing on Wednesday nights at church. And it went something like this. Bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. Some of you of a certain age, you remember that. The rest of you are going, what are we singing bullfrogs and butterflies for? Yeah, I got one here. I, got, I see that hand. I see that hand. Every eye closed. Every, no, I'm kidding. Bullfrogs and butterflies, they've both been born again. And the idea was to teach us about transformation, about metamorphosis, to teach us that Caterpillars at some point go through a change in form and they become these wonderful soaring butterflies. And why, why would you ever want to go back to being a caterpillar if you were a butterfly? And the same thing, this tadpole just looks like this disgusting little slime thing, in the, but then it becomes a bullfrog and can hop around and it's incredibly changed. And why would you ever want to go back to being a tadpole once you become a bullfrog, once you'd been transformed? Well, this morning we get to look at exactly that. We've been saying all this semester in our sermon series on the book of Mark that the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. And so we want to look directly at Jesus. We've made it through eight chapters of the gospel of Mark. The first eight chapters were building the case for the Messiahship of Jesus. Building the case. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Eight chapters of Messiahship until we quite literally in the passage come to a mountain on the very northern edge of Israel and we look down over the entire Jordan River Valley and now we pivot and we're going to see what happens as the book changes course and now we focus on discipleship. So eight chapters establishing who Jesus is and then eight chapters how then shall we live in view of this Messiah? 
How then shall we live? What are we supposed to do in our everyday going about kind of life? So we've been saying the king has come. His kingdom is here. Now at long last, after eight weeks of the gospel of Mark, I really want to make a big deal about that. The king has come. His kingdom is here. And now you're about to see it. So in the gospel of Mark, beginning in chapter 9, Mark says, And he said to them, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you. Well, we got to have a very quick context. Remember, they're way up north of Israel in Caesarea Philippi, where good little boys and girls from Israel, they do not go. It's, it's a horrible, lewd, disgusting place of pan worship. And Jesus, on the way up there, asks the disciples, hey, who, who are people saying that I am? What's the word on the street? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're just one of the prophets. And Jesus says, well, that's cute and all. That's great. But, but, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and goes, you are Mashiach. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. The only one that has been anointed as prophet and priest and king. It's you. And Jesus says, that's great, Pete. I don't want you talking about this. Let me tell you something else. Me, the son of man, the Messiah, I will go to Jerusalem. I will be delivered up. I will be mistreated. I will suffer contempt. I will be killed. I'll be dead. I'll be buried, but I will rise again. And Peter goes, you must be outside yourself. No way. That's never going to happen on my watch. You are our hero and our hope. I'm not going to let that happen. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and calls him Satan. Bad way to start your day. All right. So while they're still up there in the north, Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this little verse has caused a whole lot of people a whole lot of confusion. Does this mean that there are still some of the 12 disciples walking around today, still alive, waiting for second advent? No, of course not. I mean, some of them are going to actually see the full manifestation presented before them before they taste death, and they're not going to die in the process. Some of them will have to wait until after they die for this to occur. Peter talks about this in his second epistle. Let me read this. In Peter's second epistle, he talks about this. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What we're about to see was a profound moment for Peter. And he explains what Jesus meant by writing this in his epistle, that Jesus shows them the full coming manifestation of the glory of the kingdom of God. So then, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the inner three. Now, this is kind of a weird deal. They're still up in the very far north of Israel. And Jesus, after six days, the text is very careful. Why should we care? Well, because this is a marker back to the Old Testament. This is Exodus chapter 24. We're told that Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, also called Mount Horeb, and he takes with him Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. So you got Moses and these three people, and they go up into the mountain. And Exodus 24, verse 9 and 10 says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So what we're about to see is not an exact replica, but there's a reason that Jesus is going to 
replicate and repeat in a sense what has happened already with Moses back in Exodus 24. He just takes three, not all of them. He says, I want you guys to see this. He takes Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That's all we get. Not a whole lot of explanation, not a whole lot of uh, detail here. He's just transfigured. He's metamorpho is the Greek term. He's metamorphosed. He's transformed before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one on earth could bleach them. Literally there, no launderer on earth could launder them brighter. It's like, yo, dude, it was like super, super right bright. It was like way, way, way. In other words, he was radiant in all of this glory. It was absolutely astonishing. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how are you? What's been going on? How you been? How's your mom and him? Oh, never mind. How did Peter, James, and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? How'd they know? Well, you know, name tags. Hello, my name is, no, clear. And there were no pictures. They were seeing them as they actually were, fully, fully known. Now, there was a lot going on here that it has to be Moses and Elijah. And yes, incidentally, side note, very cool. Moses actually does make it into the promised land. He's told in his life back in the Old Testament, you're not going to go in the promised land. But here he's talking with Jesus and he's in the promised land. Moses is representative of the law, Torah, God's revealed Code of righteousness. This is what it looks like when the kingdom is enacted on earth. It's Moses. He's the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. God speaking to the people through the prophet, calling them to repentance. Turn, turn, turn. I am a God of mercy and justice. So turn. So you have Moses and Elijah going up on a mountain. You see this a lot in 1 Kings 19. Elijah spends 40 days up on Mount Sinai and God tends to him. Moses spends all this time up on Mount Sinai. And so it's those two. And the gospel of Luke, in describing this story of the transfiguration, says that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his departure, literally his exodus. This transfiguration story appears in Matthew and Mark and Luke. It is absolutely central to understand Jesus's ministry when he comes. The king has come His kingdom is here. And so he's transfigured before them and Elijah and Moses are talking to him. We see the centrality of Moses and Elijah. The very last verses we get of the Old Testament are from Malachi chapter four, verses four to six. These are the last words that we get and then 400 years of silence from God. God says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that's Sinai, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So it has to be these guys. What Moses and Elijah started in the Old Testament, Jesus is going to conclude and complete in the New Testament. He's not just showing up because, ah, you know, it's, it's just, it's just going to be fun. It's going to be a, a, a neat thing. No, there is a program of salvation in history that Jesus has come to conclude and complete the work of Moses and then Elijah. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, this is cool. Like it doesn't usually happen that your rabbi just bursts into bright white radiant light, right? Rabbi, this is really cool. It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll pull out some flashlights. We'll have s'mores. It'll be a hoot, Jesus. Now, Pete, 
Pete's missing the point. He's doing his best, but what are you, what are you saying when there's Moses and Elijah and your rabbi, your master, your teacher, your friend is transfigured before you? And he's trying to equate it with probably one of the feasts of Israel, the feast of Sukkot, of tabernacles. Hey, this is really good. Let me show you some hospitality. But, verse 6, he did not know what to say. <laughs> he was just completely befuddled because they were terrified. This is not the normal kind of thing that happens. And a cloud, a nephele, surrounds them. This is not just an atmospheric bunch of moisture. This is a presence. A nephele is, is like a... Uh, the presence of, we would say, probably the Holy Spirit. And so we're about to see a triune manifestation in some capacity of the Godhead. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Crucial. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. Heed him. So you've got the affirmation from God coming from this cloud that represents probably the Spirit, and there is Jesus. This is another inauguration. We saw Jesus receive this same affirmation at his own baptism when the Father speaks, the Spirit descends like a dove, and it inaugurates the first eight chapters to show us Jesus' Messiahship. Now we're going to get another affirmation that inaugurates what he must now go and do and accomplish. And so then how are the disciples to live in view of who this Jesus is and what he's going to do? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I have to make sure I'm super clear on this. This is not just so that we can see that Jesus is divine, that he is deity, that's true. Jesus is divine. Jesus is deity. And Mark will make that point over and over again. The point of this that Jesus has already told us is that they would see the coming of the kingdom of God in power. Jesus looks like this because he's utterly immersed, bathed in the affirmation, the love of God the Father. Now you have to understand that or the rest of this chapter will not make sense. It's not just showing that Jesus is shiny and bright. It is showing this is the kingdom coming in power. This is what it looks like when someone is fully bathed in the love and affirmation of God the Father. Mark's not trying to say that Elijah and Moses are divine. Of course not. But they are representative of the law and the prophets in the presence of a loving God who is affirming his son. Now that is all the interpretive difference in the world. Now I want you to see, why, what does that have to do with me as I'm sitting here in the brown chairs on all three of our floors? What does it have to do with me? Well, stay put, stay tight. So they look around, they saw no one with them but Jesus only. So Moses and Elijah are just gone. The cloud dissipates immediately, and there's just Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They're going, risen from the dead? But, but this can't happen. Like, there's not even a category for that. The one that we just saw, he can't die. He's going to wipe out the Romans. No way. There's no way that what we just saw, he can't. And so they're totally confused. It doesn't make sense. The, the Son of Man title from Daniel chapter 7, he can't die. There's no, there's no way this makes sense at all. And so he says, I don't want you to talking about this. People will misunderstand. You'll call me the Christ. You'll talk about what I looked like on this mountain. And then people will rally behind me, try to crown me king prematurely. That's not why I have come. I have come to show you the kingdom manifest in power. It's not what you expected. Mm, sit tight. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean, because they just can't understand it at all. And they asked him, 
to clarify. So they deflect. They don't understand what's going on exactly. So they ask Jesus some clarifying questions and then trying to deflect their confusion. And they said to him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things. Most people miss that statement. Jesus tells them, hey, you should have already known that I'm going to come and suffer. All you wanted was the conquering king, but you've forgotten all the parts of Isaiah 53 that says, I must come and suffer. It was written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah did come in the form of John the Baptist, the forerunner, and they did to him whatever they pleased, namely, Herod Antipas killed him, cut off his head. It's happening. What was foretold is happening, and it's been in the scriptures all along. We should have heard that. We should have received that. We should have been waiting and expecting and anticipating that. Well, verses 14 and follow. I want to do something a little bit different. Since we have a Messiah that is willing to die, how should we live? Well, this sets us up for our big idea. Since we have a Messiah that is willing to die, what is our big idea? It goes like this, be transformed. How does a person be transformed? I'm going to give you seven little vignettes from this chapter to show us how to be transformed. That is God's will for our lives. Bullfrogs and butterflies, we are to be transformed. How does that happen? Now, each one of these little paragraphs is in and of itself a marvelous little vignette that we could do an entire sermon on. We're not going to. I don't want to examine trees this morning. I want us to see the forest. Each one of these things is showing us, in view of what they've just seen on the mountain, the kingdom of God coming in power, what is God's plan for our life? That we be transformed. How are we to be transformed? Let's start reading verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So they come down the mountain. The other nine disciples are there, and there's a ruckus. And the legislators, the guys who write all the additional code above and beyond Torah, they're all there, and there's a bunch of people arguing with one another. They're still way up in the north near Caesarea Philippi. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought, you, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. I brought my son to you, Jesus. I came all this way, and I, you weren't here, so I asked your disciples, and they did no good. What's this all about? Watch Jesus' response. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It seems kind of harsh. Like, whoa, Jesus, dad's got a demon-possessed son, and you're calling the whole generation faithless? Well, there's a reason for that. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Then Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, meaning basically his entire adolescent life. And it has often cast him into fire and in water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then this famous, famous verse, Mark 9, 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever been there? I sure have. 
But the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. That's how our unbelief is helped. We look at Jesus. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, because that's what Jesus does. He takes dead things and he makes them alive. He raises them to walk in newness of life, because that's what Jesus does. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Every other sign in Mark thus far, every other healing, the crowd is stunned, they're shocked, they're amazed, and they applaud and they go crazy. Not this time. This one was just for the disciples. They enter some house up near Caesarea Philippi still, and they don't understand. Why were we not able to cast it out? In Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls his disciples to them, to himself, on a mountain. He says, I'm calling you to me, you 12, so that you will be with me, so that you will proclaim the kingdom, and so that you will cast out demons. And then in Mark chapter 6, the longest day, he sends them all out two by two. And they are successful casting out demons. But now they encounter this one, and they have no luck. They do no good. What's the difference? And Jesus answers, verse 29, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer which has caused a lot of people, a lot of conversation, a lot of confusion, like, oh, okay, so there's some demons that you have to go this particular technique. No, not Jesus' point. His point is, you never had any ability whatsoever to cast any demons out on your own. All that power is mine. You began to rely solely on yourselves, thinking that it was about you, your calling, your strength, your gift, your talent, your intellect. No, that's why he calls them a faithless generation. You have to trust Jesus. And so our very first point, since we have a Messiah, this glorious one who is willing to die, we are to be transformed. How are we to be transformed? The first one goes like this. And these are all going to sound very, very familiar. First one goes like this. Transformation requires reliance on Jesus. God's will is that you be transformed. And for that to occur, you and I must rely on Jesus. It is about praying in his name, ingesting his word. It is his life that we live, not our own. That's how this impacts each of us directly. Since we see what this Messiah is and what he is willing to do to invite us into that kingdom that he showed Peter, James, and John, how are we to live? We are to be transformed. How? Transformation requires reliance on Jesus. Well, verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. So they're going to continue on going south. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. This is the second of three times when Jesus gives them a full program of how this is going to go. Coming down the mountain, now pointing almost, as it were, all the way to Jerusalem, all the way south. This is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Every of these three times, each one, they react so comically and yet tragically wrong. They just don't get it. Watch how they respond when Jesus just says, I'm the Son of Man. The one from Daniel 7, who's presented before the Ancient of Days that you just saw in glory, and I will go and die to take away the sin of the world. And they go, huh. Well, verse 33, as they came now to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, 
For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Like, you got to be kidding me. You would never make this up. We've just seen Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah on a mountain, transfigured. And their reaction, he goes, hey, you know what? Yeah, but, but, uh, but Thaddeus, you weren't up there. I was. That's right, Bartholomew. Nobody even knows who you are. That's right. Well, James, I was actually closer. And Peter, you were a goofus. You were making tents. And, and so they're trying to establish a pecking order. And Jesus knows what's going on. They kept silent for the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Just like you're going to see from me, the way up is down. The way to be at the highest is to go the lowest. Now watch what Jesus does. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives me, not me, but him who sent me. Jesus uses a child as an object lesson. Why? Because children are such a perfect picture of humility. Those of you with children, <laughs> no, that's not. Because a child has no pecking order. They, they have nothing to order in terms of esteem. But we have to understand this was so central to a Jewish culture. That's why Jesus will tell them all the time, when you walk in and you see a banquet, don't sit at the head of the table because you're probably going to get kicked down a few notches and that's going to be humiliating. Instead, sit at the kitty table and eat graham crackers and then the master of the feast will come in and go, oh, you, you don't belong down there. You should come up here and you'll be esteemed. James, Jesus' half-brother, writes in his epistle, go low, don't show favoritism. But this was a complete different way. They see Jesus revealed in power in the kingdom. They go, yes, I deserve to be at the closest. I want to have that pecking order. Jesus is my shortcut. He's my ticket. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Since you have a Messiah that is willing to die, how then should you live? You're to be transformed. And so second point, transformation requires a right rating of self. You're a caterpillar. You're a tadpole. Transformation requires diligently, intentionally, but volitionally, all the time, a right rating of self. We go low to go high, just like Jesus. Well, it continues on. Verse 38, John said to him, now John doesn't usually speak in Mark's gospel, but it's such a big deal that Mark's going to point this one out. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. <laughs> like, what? Why would you do that? It's better for someone to have a demon in them than, you know, for us to not have done it. John, come on, man. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, which, by the way, they couldn't do just a little bit ago. And we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. Can you believe these guys? These disciples, you just think, surely they're going to start to clue in. Nope, not yet. They didn't actually follow us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does... A mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, no, no, don't stop that. This is a call back to the Old Testament. Moses and Joshua go up on the mountain and they see some other dude up there prophesying. And Joshua goes, hey, Moses, that's not cool. That's not you. Shall I go whack him? <laughs> and Moses goes, no, Joshua, he's prophesying on behalf of Yahweh. Leave him alone. And so what are we to do? How are we to live since we have a Messiah who is willing to die? We are to be transformed. What do we pull away from this little bitty paragraph? Transformation requires respect of the truth. 
All truth is God's truth. And when we see other people in different expressions saying true things, we are to celebrate. We are to give praise to God for His truth, for His glory, for His fame and His renown. Jesus says, no, it's not all about you and your group, John. It's about what I'm doing in the world. I am the Messiah, and I will go low so that the whole world can be invited into His kingdom. Then verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, literally, I don't know why we translate this differently, literally a donkey millstone, which is just fun to say. It'd be better for you if a donkey millstone, not just one of those little millstones that you get at Bed Bath & Beyond. Oh no, this is the big donkey millstone that it's so big that they got to tie a donkey to it to tie it to pull it around in circles. It'd be better if a donkey millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if, you hand, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. I want you to understand something. Jesus believes in hell. It's not just an idea. He's speaking here of Gehenna on the southwest corner of the city of Jerusalem where the garbage heap and all the burning would take place. You'll notice that in your Bible, you probably don't have verse 44. You probably don't have verse 46 because it's the exact same thing as verse 48. Most manuscripts don't have those verses repeating like that, so most translations just take them out. Don't worry about that. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Whoa, Jesus, are you actually calling people to self-mutilate? No, absolutely not, and of course not. That would be a violation of his own word. He's speaking metaphorically. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, like in Jerusalem, in Gehenna, what it's called. They would have been very, very familiar with that. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Sin is a really big deal, Jesus wants them to know. So, since we have a Messiah that's willing to die, how should we live? One of the old Puritans, John Owen, said, always be killing sin or sin will always be killing you. How should we live? We are to be transformed. And how does transformation happen? Transformation requires recognition of sin. Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. Why am I thinking, feeling, doing, speaking these things? Because at some level, I don't believe the gospel. And it is a big Big deal. Yes, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Do not wink and grin and snicker at sin. It is a horrible thing, but it is no match for God's grace. So this long chapter, Mark chapter 9, all 50 verses, what are we to take away from this? We are to be transformed. A couple more points on this. Three more summary points. I mentioned that metamorpho, when Jesus is transfigured. That word only happens four times in your New Testament. Once in Mark's telling, once in Matthew's telling, and it happens two other places that we are to be transformed. Now, I don't want to narrow and come down in this funnel with some specificity. Next point, transformation requires regarding the Savior. God's plan for our life is that we be transformed. How does transformation happen? It requires regarding our Savior. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's describing what happened 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Spirit's presence is in the process of trying as we speak in the here and the now to transform you. Into what? The very image of Jesus. Into the person of Christ and his glory. No, you're never going to be Jesus. You're not the anointed one. But to transform you, that, that cloud that was present is still at work in our lives so that you will become, even in the here and now, in the process, ever increasingly from glory to glory. As you look at Jesus, you are being transformed into some superhero? No, someone who is in the kingdom now because the kingdom is here because the king has brought it. Someone who is bathed in the affirmation, in the love, in the beloved of the Father. That's what we are to be transformed into. That is God's will for our lives. We've said it many times. We'll say it again. We, we become what we behold. So the old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. See, as Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his glory began to fade because he was no longer in the presence. And he told all the people what God said, and their faces didn't glow. But we, with unveiled faces, ever increasingly grow in glory because we rightly regard the Savior. Since we are to be transformed, how does that happen? Sixth point, transformation requires renewing the mind. This is the only other time this word metamorpho occurs in your Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. This imperative to be transformed from something that you were not to something that you will always be for all eternity. How? By the renewal of your mind. So transformation requires renewing your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That you may be the demonstration. The word here is the, the dokimazo, the proof, the, the, the exhibition A, the, the pictures of coming attractions. It's you just like what Peter and James and John got on the Mount of Transfiguration, that people would look at your life and go, you're, you're, you're like, somehow you got the high pro glow. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something different about you. That you would be the kingdom walking around in a personal form because that's what this world needs, bathed in the affirmation and the love of God the Father. This is what we mean by repentance. We rethink our thinking when our mind is renewed. We, our thoughts and our feelings about Christ are always growing and we are changed. We walk around as demonstrations of the kingdom, little personified picture of this coming attraction that is God's kingdom fully manifest. So be transformed. The seventh point finally at long last goes like this. Transformation is real. I think we often sitting in these brown chairs on whatever floors or watching remotely, we get bogged down into the mindset as Christians that says we simply have to slog out this life until we die or Jesus returns. But that's not what Jesus is showing the disciples as he comes down from the mountain. No, 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 no. I'm inviting you to be in the beloved. Transformation is real. It is God's plan for your life. The good news of the gospel is that transformation really and truly is made available to you and me here and now. This is God's plan for our lives. We've been given all that we need for life and godliness now. He is enough. The work of the Son and the Spirit, it's enough. And His plan is that we ever increasingly be transformed into His image. This is why the New Testament epistles will call us again and again and again, the beloved. 
That is a title reserved only for Jesus. But the New Testament wants us to know that that is true of us. What Jesus experienced and what they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that is our certainty. So a person who knows that that is their absolute eternal certainty, why would they ever want to return back to being a caterpillar or a tadpole? What we see in Christ on the mountain, that is our destiny. That is what God is doing already and not yet. We are to be transformed. Transformation is real. This is God's will. See, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. You're just trying to get to the end of the race and have a little more gold stars than red X's. And I want you to hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. He invites us to live with certainty now that we are of the kingdom. We are from the future living in the present now. And so I invite you to believe. For the rest of us, perhaps you've fallen into the rut of like the disciples trying to figure out who's better. We say there's no com the, the comparison is the thief of joy unless you think you're better. And then it's very joyous, but no, there's no pecking order. Christ is the one who takes us high when we are willing to go low. So I want to remind us to be transformed. This is God's plan for your life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the morning, for the opportunity to hear your plan, the lengths that you were willing to go in Christ to show what it looks like when a person is bathed in your affirmation and your love so I pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that does not feel that, does not live in that, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. They would step out of death and into life. And for the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that there's a reason we are not raptured instantly into your presence when we are converted. And that is because we are to be perpetually in the process of being transformed. This is God's plan for each of our lives. This is your plan, Father, for all those around us, that we would be transformed. So we pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.